Welcome to Claim the Stage, a podcast for women who want to discover, awaken, and create their voice through the art of public speaking. I'm your host, Angela Lucier, award-winning professional speaker, author, and CEO and founder of the Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women. You're listening to the Guest Mentors five-part summer series. This is an opportunity for you to learn from women who are, first and foremost, professional speakers, but they're also authors, speaker coaches, and seasoned business owners. You'll learn about their mindset shifts, challenges, systems, advice for new speakers, pricing tips, and so much more. This series is full of inspiring personal stories, entertaining experiences on stage, and expert advice. Plus, all of these women are super cool. I want to hang out with everyone and make cookies and ride bikes. So you have that to look forward to. The Guest Mentors five-part summer series is sponsored by Speaking School for Women, my signature online course that teaches you how to become a paid professional speaker in six weeks or less. Learn branding, marketing, speech craft, pricing, pitching, and so much more. Now until August 31st, get 20% off using promo code SUMMER20 at checkout. Learn more at speakersisterhood.thinkific.com. Link is in the show notes. This series is also sponsored by Told Video, original, thoughtful storytelling for your brand. Here to help you with your next step in speaker marketing, a meaningful video. Let your story out into the world and get it told. Follow Told Video on Instagram at Told Video for flash sales and discounts announced monthly. On today's episode, you'll hear from guest mentor Susan Lindner. Susan Lindner is a cultural anthropologist, brand marketer, and disruptor. Susan got her start as an AIDS educator in the brothels of Thailand, helping prostitutes turn into entrepreneurs. Today, she's the founder of Emerging Media, a branding, PR, and marketing agency dedicated to helping tech founders reach their finish lines. Her award-winning strategies have gotten 10 companies acquired, and she's now hell-bent on sharing them with the world. Susan speaks to startups, innovators, and top executives from 60-plus countries at GE, PwC, Deutsche Bank, Capital One, and at global conferences, consulates, and trade organizations about strategic storytelling, mastering the message, and the media for maximum impact. Without further ado, my interview with Susan Lindner. Susan Lindner, welcome to Claim the Stage. Thank you so much for having me, Angela. This is awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you today. You have such a unique story and background, and yet you're doing the kind of work that we talk about here on the podcast all the time, which is speaking and training and you know teaching and helping others. But where you came from is a little different from many of my guests. So I thought before we jump into your advice and your experiences, you could tell us a little bit about your story and your background and how you got here. Yeah. So presently, I'm the CEO of Emerging Media. We're a PR marketing and branding agency exclusively for innovation companies. But I wasn't always a brand marketer. I'm actually a cultural anthropologist by training. I got my start working with prostitutes in Thailand. I was an HIV educator and spent a lot of time working in brothels, working with prostitutes and their johns and the mamasans who own those brothels. 
helping women who didn't want to be prostitutes anymore to become entrepreneurs and to stop the flow of HIV. So from there, I, when I came back, I worked at the Centers for Disease Control as an epidemiologist. And after getting tired with government service, although I loved my patients, I was ready for the internet boom that was taking off and converted my skills in communicating in rural areas to sex workers, to working in the tech world and becoming a tech PR person or publicist. So after watching the dot-com boom explode and then implode, I decided that would be the perfect time to start my own (laughs) tech-focused PR firm (laughs) and did that right around 2001, 2002. And yeah, it's almost 20 years now of, of running that. The speaking kind of started much later, but it was a direct offshoot of really wanting to communicate everything that we learned in the innovation space by helping young companies and and large companies to figure out how to tell their stories more effectively. Mm -hmm. And so when you were starting your own business, what kind of mindset shifts had to take place in order for you to feel like this was something you could do? Well, I think it was desperation. (laughs) The previous agency that I had worked in, you know, it was all kind of culminating around the time of 9-11. In fact, our biggest client was in the plane that hit the World Trade Center. And our client, the CEO of that company, happened to be my boss's best friend. So when we lost, when you know, when we lost Danny Lewin, the founder of Akamai Technologies, everything kind of shifted. You know, the whole global landscape shifted. What we thought about business shifted. And ultimately my boss decided he didn't want to do PR anymore. He had lost his best friend. And he had said to me, would you like to buy the business from me? And I said, fantastic. How much? And he said, $1 million. And I said, that's funny because you cut my paychecks and there are a couple of zeros missing in order for me to make that happen. (laughs) And he said to me, well, don't worry about it. Just pay me $100,000 a year for the next 10 years. And I thought, I can't keep a boyfriend for three months. (laughs) I was 29 years old. I was 30 at the time. And I thought, I don't think that's the kind of relationship I'm looking to enter. It sounds very costly. <laughs> and so I said, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm going to go out on my own. And sure enough, all of my clients called me and said, why don't you start your own PR firm and we'll follow you. And with that, I hung out a shingle in 2002 and started the mindset shift of going from employee with lots of resources to working out of my fifth floor walk-up apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I had hired my best intern. She was so much smarter than me, Yale graduate, dual major in opera and electrical engineering. (laughs) Yeah, brilliant. She's now a physician. (laughs) And and we wound up just going for it. I think the biggest wake-up call for me was six months later, finding myself at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City on a gurney because I had had chest pains for a week because I hadn't really left my apartment in almost six months because I was working so hard to build the business. And I lost my first client. And I thought my heart is literally breaking over losing this customer. And I have to find a different way. I have to figure out a way to work differently. And so the shift was, it was really do or die. Like, I cannot be a workaholic. I have to find a new way. So it was putting in systems, hiring the right people, really beginning to delineate what was my job versus other people's job because I was just firefighting, doing everything. Mm -hmm. 
how did you take the work less personally as you went on? You know, if you lost a customer, did you feel that that was personal or did, did you feel like it was a financial hit or was it something that you felt like you took, you took, yeah, to heart? So that would probably went on for about five years of me still feeling agonizing pain, losing a client. I learned that red wine helps. I also learned that I learned that having a partner made all the difference in the world. So being able to bring someone on board who at the time happened to be my boyfriend and who is now my husband wound up, we wound up working together in the business and growing the business together. So that was a big shift. Um, He wrote me a proposal and said, I'd like to come and work for you. What do you think? And I said, well, I can pay you about $30,000 a year, which is about a fifth of what you're currently making. And I don't know if I will either lose the business or lose our relationship as a result. But if you're willing to take that risk, then I'm willing to take it too. And that's how we decided to grow the business together. Oh my God, that's amazing. (laughs) You're able to do both of those things, have have him as a business partner and as a partner in life. Well, don't get me wrong. There were occasionally days where there was just a stiletto flying across the office. (laughs) But I would say 90% of the time, it worked out great. So when you started speaking more, what were some of the things that you did to market yourself as a speaker? So, you know, this transition to speaker was very new for me. I had always, I liked public speaking, but hadn't really pursued it. And as a PR person, part of my job was putting my clients on stages at conferences and events or even their own user conference, what have you. So, you know, the idea was to help them become thought leaders. And frankly, I never really thought of it for myself. I used to go and speak to groups of startups or at incubators in order to drum up business for my agency. But at no point in time did I think of myself as a speaker. It was just part of the pipeline building, part of the prospecting and process. Foolish me though, I probably spoke to about 700 companies before anyone ever mentioned, did you know that you could get paid for this? (laughs) And so, yeah, I'm a little bit late to the game, needless to say. But I was giving a talk at the Belgian American Chamber of Commerce on messaging and storytelling. And someone in the room said, do you know, we could really use this kind of thinking at GE. And I thought, really? Because my life had been startups and divisions of companies that were innovating. And they said, yeah, we really would love this kind of talk. And so I, and I said, is there budget for this kind of talk? Because I couldn't conceive of them becoming necessarily a client of mine since my world was in startups. And she said, yes, we do have budget for this. And so sure enough, I wound up going and auditioning, having to present my full presentation. And then being said, yes, we'd like to introduce you to the top 1% of executives at the company. Could you come and give this as a workshop? And I said, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my transition from 700 startups from around the world, because most of my clientele is international startups that want to break into the US market. But that was my foray into professional speaking. And did that change the way that you thought about yourself as a speaker when you went into GE and started talking to the 1% of leaders there? Did you start to feel like, oh, maybe this isn't just a thing where I go and 
kind of talk to people, but this could become a revenue stream and this could become part of our brand that did that start to happen for you? You know, two things kind of coalesced at the same time. I had turned 45 and I decided I was going to do things that terrified me. Whatever was scary, it wasn't going to own me anymore. And so I went to Colorado and I rode a horse. (laughs) Terrifying. I got thrown off that horse. I don't think it was Rusty's fault. I got back on that horse. I was very proud of myself. I also had a terrible fear of heights and wound up doing Colorado's longest, tallest zip line, which is five zip lines. And I learned two really important things. One, when you're up that high, no one can hear you scream. (laughs) And by the time you've hit your fifth zip line, you've lost your voice. So (laughs) I came back from that trip though. And my husband said, well, congratulations. You pretty much managed conquering the fears of an eight-year-old on a family vacation in Costa Rica, (laughs) but they were big for me. And he said, why don't you do something that's really terrifying? And I said, what's that? And he pushed across the table, a coupon for six weeks of stand-up comedy lessons. And at the end, you had to perform in front of a hundred strangers. And so I was feeling so bold and full of myself. I was like, you're on, let's do this. (laughs) And it was actually getting up on stage, which is by far the most terrifying thing, far more terrifying than those zip lines. But I realized that there was something exhilarating about it at the same time. And there was something wonderful about making people laugh. And I realized that I could stand up on a stage, I could talk to people and I could make them laugh. But I could also educate them about something that they didn't know about that would really help their businesses. And that was a shift for me of saying, okay, I don't have to go up here and be terrified. I can actually come to the, come to the platform with confidence and share what I've known, what I've been doing for the last 20 years and really help change somebody's business life. So that was the shift where I thought, okay, but I still do, com- I still do stand up. So it's still a lot of fun because it, it keeps me fresh and it keeps me terrified. <laughs> How much of your talks now incorporate your stand-up material or humor? Do you use it a lot? No. So none of my jokes for my set will ever be in my corporate work because it's really dark. <laughs> <laughs> my comedy is really... So I should mention, my dad was a Holocaust survivor and my mom was, you know, no fault of her own, was in Hitler Youth Corps as a kid. So when you have backgrounds of two people on such opposite sides of a conflict, like comedy ensues if you let it. (laughs) Heartbreak and comedy (laughs) ensue. So my comedy is more about growing up in that house of what's it like to have Holocaust survivors on one side and, and, you know, the other team, let's say, at the the Christmas dinner table and and what that's like. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) So as you started speaking more, you probably started to realize that you needed to create systems for yourself in order to manage all of your contacts and upcoming events and travel schedules. And I know this isn't the most, the sexiest question in the world, but I think it's such an important question because when speakers are starting out, this is such a big, confusing part of how you make all of this stuff happen and do it seamlessly and get contracts out. And so I'm wondering if you have a system, if you have any software you use, if the, if you have any stories about how you maybe did this horribly wrong or how it's going right for you, <laughs> whatever you want to say on the topic, because I, I think it it's worth talking about. Yeah. So I think like most of us, we start this process by living in email. 
And, you know, we're sending out, you know, cold emails, warm leads, people we've met at conferences, networking, whatever it is. And life kind of trods along an email for a good long time until that system completely breaks down and you can't track, when was I supposed to call that person back? And it's been a year since I spoke in that place. And the calendar starts to kind of be your best friend, right? Everything works in a schedule. And then suddenly it's like, okay, these two things that served me for a long time aren't sufficient anymore to manage life. So the next step up, I think, is, is a confluence of email, calendar, CRM, and some kind of marketing solution that allows you to communicate with lots of people, but not in a way that feels connected and feels personalized rather than dumped upon. And so figuring out those systems to create personalized approaches I think has been the most challenging, but probably the most rewarding part of that process. And then with the advent of social media is how do we begin to bring in those pieces? So whether it's contacts you make on Facebook and LinkedIn and so forth. So for me, the process has been leveraging a CRM system, B, virtual assistant to help manage that CRM system and see some kind of constant contact or email marketing software that allows me to touch base with people in a way that feels connected. I want to chat about those three things you just mentioned. Which CRM do you use? I use HubSpot. Oh, okay. And what do you like about that for what you're trying to do? So what I, I was familiar with HubSpot because I've seen it create a revolution in so many other businesses with inbound marketing and the shift from, for HubSpot was the idea that people don't want to be marketed to and they want to opt in to life. They want to opt into this process. So HubSpot for me felt like a natural because I'd seen it revolutionize so many other of the tech companies that I was working with. And that ability to say, would you like, and by the way, what else about my content do you like so I can give you more of it? I like the sharing opportunity. I love the easy email integration I've worked with tech companies for 20 years and I can talk your ear off about AI and blockchain and whatever else. But when it, for me, when it comes to using these systems, I need base. Like I don't want to be wowed by it. I just want it to work. Yeah. And so for me, HubSpot just works. It's simple and straightforward. There's not a lot of customization needed. So the ease of use was critical for me. Mm-hmm. And you said you work with a virtual assistant. What does the virtual assistant do for you? So she is my CRM administrator. So I just got off a speaking tour in in France and another conference in Paris and in Silicon Valley. So I will make a host of LinkedIn connections or I'll ask her to make those LinkedIn connections for me. I'll write the note and then have her make those connections. And I should say, I will go through the app that I get at a conference and I will download maybe... 50 to 100 contacts of people who I want to get to know before I get there, and then people who I'll actually meet when I'm there. And then I'll take those and download those to her. If I make contacts on the spot at LinkedIn, I'll highlight all of those or even take screenshots and share them with her to begin to put into the into our CRM system and to make those connections. She is also responsible for setting up the messaging of keeping in touch with people over time. So it's been about two and a half years now since my first, since that first contract with GE and keeping on top of all of the conferences that we submit to and the 
kind of annual nature of, oh, I see your conference is coming up again, or, oh, are you having that retreat again? That kind of thing, she's responsible for the follow-up. And then also travel and logistics contracts. So you but see- I will handle all the negotiations. Oh, yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about the ongoing messaging. Is that how you use constant contact or what's that role for, for you? Yeah, so to be honest, I'm still building it. I feel like there's nothing I like less than something that just feels like everyone in the world is getting it. So we're trying to get a little bit better at segmenting, you know, like so great meeting you at the Innovators Conference in Paris last year. Can't believe it's been a year already. How about? So we're trying to get far more refined on the messaging rather than just blankets. And I recall you being in my workshop last year. I'm wondering what you've done with storytelling since. And so if I know that I have, you know, 90 people who were in my workshop last year, that's pretty specific. But I, I will probably give that workshop 20 times over the course of a year. So 20 times another 100 people. It feels very personalized, but I'm just really changing the name of the conference. Yeah. So what percentage of your business comes from this process of using your CRM and your VA versus referrals from past clients that, you know, said that you did a great job or someone who was just sitting in your audience and took your business card and contacted you out of the blue. Yeah. I did, I to be honest, I should do a better job of tracking. I don't know the answer to that, but I will say that I think the the one-on-one connection that happens in the moment for me becomes the most powerful generator of business. The other winds up becoming a generator of repeat business sometimes. So for example, I might have them as a client, but I still might send them that. I might do a one-off workshop and then say, how's it going since? And then they're like, oh, that all fell off the wagon. You know, we did that great workshop with you and then we got a change in leadership and we got a change in direction. Can you come back and, and re-educate us again? So I think I think it's a little bit of both, but I would probably say realistically, probably 75% of the business is still me hoofing it and talking one-on-one to people. Oh, wow. So you mentioned negotiation a minute ago, and I wanted to talk Mm. to you about this piece. I put pitching and pricing and negotiation into one category because I think it all requires lots of courage and planning and knowing what you're going to charge and what your bottom line is. So what are your challenges when it comes to those three things? And do you have any advice or tips on how to, how to do it better? <laughs> yeah. You know, that first time I was pitching that GE contract, I was the person, the procurement person on the phone would not give me any indication of a range. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, can you tell me what the range is for most of the speakers? She's like, you know, and <laughs> I said, I'll bet they are. And I said, well, you know, historically, where would some of those in individual speakers have fallen? She's like, well, you know, it depends. And every division has a different budget. And I'm like, I'm going to murder someone. <laughs> but so, but I did hear a little voice in my head that said, ask for more. It was just this kind of clear clarity that just said, ask for more, whatever it is, the number that you had on your tongue, just ask for more. And in that moment of gumption and naivete, I just doubled it. And the woman with a thick Bronx accent on the other end of the phone said to me, she goes, did you hear that noise? And I said, 
no, what's that? She goes, that was my jaw dropping to the floor. <laughs> she goes, you know, we're talking about Tony Robbins money here. As she responded to the price. I quoted her and I said, I think you and I both know that's not Tony Robbins money. <laughs> and she said, okay, so let's talk now. How could we really make this happen? But she didn't necessarily say absolutely not. So I thought, okay, I have a shot. I have a shot. So we figured out a way how to take that number and break it down in three different directions, and it worked. What do you mean by three different directions? So she said, you know, can you consider this number as pre-work, during the event, and post-work? Can you talk about providing, since it's going to be a five-hour workshop, can you refer to the first hour as a keynote and make the next three hours a workshop? I was like, so she knew how to orchestrate it appropriately without really making me change my number. And I was really grateful that she suggested all those things because I would have had no idea how to do that. Yeah. I thought she would have come back to me and said, half it and we'll have a conversation in her equally thick Bronx accent. (laughs) But that's not what happened. So the way I approach pitching, pricing, and negotiating is first and foremost is to figure out what is the value of the problem that I'm solving? So what is it costing them if they don't solve this problem? And if they can put a dollar number on it and really push them to think about the dollar number that it's costing them. So I just hung up on a a call with a prospect who said, we're losing our thought leadership position if we aren't able to communicate our value with stories. Because if we just come in with a price list and functions and features of our product, then we're screwed. We're a commodity. We're like anyone else. And I was like, wow, this is a company that's been in business for 35 years. How long did it take them to gain that thought leadership position? And what if their executives are losing it for them now? You know, through no intention of their own, they're just missing this mark. So step one is really figuring out what's the value of the problem that I'm solving and try to put the onus on the prospect to tell me what that number is and guide them through that conversation. As for pricing, I try to give a tiered, a tiered proposal. So it's, here's the most expensive thing that you can buy for me, and it seems wildly outlandish. And then here are two other options that seem potentially more in your budget range. But what I've come to find is that I really don't know how much people have to spend. And I think we make a lot of assumptions, especially me coming from the startup world, making similar assumptions with the grown-up world has been a big learning curve. So I also try to state it emphatically. You know, like if the number is 10K, I'm like, yep, neat and sweet, just 10,000 for X, you know, whatever that number may be. And I just kind of said, yeah, it's just X. And I also try to use not a standard 10K number. Maybe it's like 9,800 or 12.5 or something like that. So it doesn't feel so absolute. That seems to be more effective than just talking, looking at zeros. And then in the negotiating is trying to provide options. So I learned that from that very first call is how do we need to make that happen? Can we bring in sponsors? Can we talk to other people? What other departments would benefit from this that you could share the cost together? Just figuring out other ways. Do I really need to charge for a videotape if I really don't want more footage of me or, you know, but they might want it or just things like trying to be as flexible as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. When it comes to pitching, do you ever feel like you have to go into the educator's kind of seat in order for them to understand why storytelling is so important. It seems like we're at a point now where a lot of 
leaders, business leaders understand why that's valuable, but maybe some are still operating from the older viewpoint. Do you, how much of your pitching is about helping them understand why it's important? So if they've heard me speak, then they know. If I'm reaching out to them, then they may not, they may not understand it as a fundamental skill. So I might give an example like, here's the consequence of what happens when executives can't tell stories, especially as innovators. If they can't buy into the vision of the leader, then their top executives will leave. And chances are they'll leave to go to your top competitors. And the role of that executive is now jeopardized from a career standpoint and also from an efficacy standpoint of actually getting their you know, their quarterly and annual goals met, they simply won't be able to do it. And that linchpin is that bridge between innovation and progress, which is the story. And so suddenly people do tend to wake up and go, oh, I get it. You know, because for the most part, my clientele are all innovators. So most innovators are great at innovating. They're really awful at telling people why it matters. They're really awful at telling the story. And it's largely because they spent their lives on campus at, in the computer science, electrical engineering, chemical engineering divisions. They never got to the journalism, PR, and literature sides of campus to know that this is a critical executive function. And it's yeah. not taught at Harvard Business School. And it's not taught you know, to executives. Yeah. And oftentimes the person who makes the thing, innovates the thing, is so close to it that they have a hard time seeing it the way the rest of the world sees it. <laughs> so Right. It's such and an they may not be open to criticism. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's their baby. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I know you said it's been two and a half years since you did that speaking engagement at GE, but you had done those 700 speaking gigs before that, <laughs> which I can relate to doing 500 before I realized I could get paid for it. So I'm really excited that I Oh my gosh, we're in the club together. Yeah. I'm like, there's one other person on the planet who's done this. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> so what advice would you give to your past self that would have made this journey easier for you, this public speaking journey? Yeah. I think step one is to recognize the value of the content from the get-go. And I don't think I realized, you know, and you can collect a thousand surveys and a hundred people can tell you how fantastic your content is or life-changing or anything else, but ultimately it, you have to be the one to put the value on it. You're the one who has to recognize that the message that you have to share really is valuable on the, you know, on that esoteric plane, but also on the financial plane. And there is value associated with it. And then it's up to you to figure out what the market will bear for that value. And can you provide it consistently? So I think I would have said, I think I would look to that younger me and say, who else can benefit from this content besides the people who I'm giving it away to currently? And who else is going to be willing to pay for it? And I, I simply never asked myself those questions. I really just saw it as a pipeline feeder for my PR agency. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see the other sides, the other facets of the diamond to know it would be valuable to so many others. Yeah, absolutely. What advice do you have for speakers who are trying to break into this field and are maybe feeling lost or stuck or having a hard time valuing their work? 
I think a trip to influence is a giant eye-opener. If you go to the NSA's annual conference, Influence, I think this year it's in Denver, you, I think, at least for me, first time as the speaker two years ago, being in a room with so many loquacious people, it was the first time as for this extrovert to just sit and be quiet. I'm a Buddhist. I've been on more meditation retreats than I can count, and yet that is the place where I probably talk the least <laughs> because <laughs> I had so much to learn from the people around me. And it is like drinking from a fire hose. And I still have seven pages of to-dos out of that influence meeting <laughs> that I am still working on. Wow. But I will say it, what was most eye-opening for me about that experience was going to the affinity day of the different affinity groups within NSA. So, you know, war veterans, retired athletes, wounded and disabled individuals, the power women of the NSA, black NSA, just incredible groups within it where you can find your tribe of people to go, oh, who speaks on the topics I do? Who could I learn from? Who do I admire? Wow, that is not my style at all. And I will never sound like that. And that is perfectly okay. Going there was really helpful for me in navigating, but also identifying some competitors and going, oh, this is what the talk around storytelling looks like. Where can I carve out a niche that's truly mine? So all of that was just really helpful of just kind of having the entire speaking world splayed out for me and going, where can I find a home in this? Mm -hmm. And then charting a path from there. Yeah. Do you find that going to any conference now, you sit in the audience and you view the speakers very differently than you did before you were a speaker? Oh my God, I'm so critical. (laughs) (laughs) Horrible. I'm like the worst doctor patient ever. And yet I get to the end and I'm like, I am filled with compassion for you because I know how hard this is. But yeah, I start off really critical Nelly. Yeah. Yeah, me too. It's kind of fun. I was just talking to a friend. I was like, it's kind of like speaker porn. You know, you get to sit and just watch these people up on stage and you derive so much pleasure from watching (laughs) <laughs> it's like they're up there and you're just like judging shot them. Of yeah. <laughs> but it is really fun. Spelling error on slide nine. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like very critical. Every single thing they do, I'm like, you shouldn't go that far to the right on the stage. It's really hard for the people over there to see, you know. Like, it's just but I mean, <laughs> But all of it's learning. Do you feel like, you know, watching great speakers and awful speakers, you know, we're all, we're all still learning. And I know I'm going to look back on myself 10 years from now and go, you've come a long way, baby. And, you know, at some point there was someone sitting in that audience going, oh my God, get that woman off this stage, you know, and that's okay too. Yeah. At least I could say I put in 700, you know, reams of practice before I got there. I was really trying to hold it. You were. Do you have a motto or a philosophy that you live by that helps you with, you know, booking more gigs and being persistent and staying focused? Because sometimes this this business can feel like just such a slog and it's so much marketing and it's just, you know, you have to be on it all the time. Yeah, it's exhausting. I mean, and I say that as someone who owned a marketing agency, who owns a marketing agency, it, it it's it's a very different thing. It's a different animal, at least for me, than having marketed clients for the last you know, 18 years. The feeling is so much more vulnerable when you are the product. And as a result, every task, every interaction feels like selling a chunk of flesh. 
And so when you recognize kind of the gravitas and even trying to pull the ego back from it, it's still very challenging to say, I'm the best in my field at this. And I really think that I can help you with this. Will you allow me to do that? You know, it's, it's a different kind of commitment. And so the, the, I try to, A, set an affirmation for myself. I learned this. I'm a member of the Black NSA, even though this, my, ethnic, my ethnicity is not African-American, but I've been graciously allowed entry into the Black NSA. It's just where I felt most at home in 2017 on that day. And I joined the Black NSA's Million Dollar Mastermind, and we read the book by Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, which begins with an affirmation that includes a dollar number. So every morning while I'm brushing my teeth, it's I, Susan Linder, will have X number of dollars in my bank account by X date. And that goal gets updated every quarter. And it's something that started two years ago. And as a result, it's allowed me to surpass my goal every time. And I never knew that this kind of philosophy existed. And I didn't know about it. And I would not know about it with Black NSA. So an affirmation every morning has been really helpful. CRM system to keep me honest about follow-up has been very valuable. And then also getting really clear about my subconscious, which is constantly telling me that I am less than, not fast enough, not, you know, not equal to the task, not keeping up with the trend, not, not, not. And I just try to block that voice wherever humanly possible saying, thanks very much for letting me know. I'm walking that thought out of the room right now. No, thank you. I'm going to stick to the positivity, but it's a conscious effort. If you don't block the negative with something positive, it will just fester. So I try to escort those negative internal messages out every day. Do you find the more you you do the escorting, the less frequently they show up or? Not less frequently. I'm just able to remove them faster. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Is there a place we can find you online to learn more? Absolutely. So I'm Susan Lindner, the innovation communicator, and I'm at susanlindner.com. And I will, and I'm not sure when the podcast will be airing, but I think by, I have all of my speaking engagements on my website so people can find me there. And there are a lot of free talks as well that people can come and attend. Oh, great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. This was great. And I just, I love hearing your story and knowing that we're the two crazy speakers <laughs> <laughs> who, who got up on stage hundreds of times and then found out we could get paid for it. So, so you know, um, I'll share with you from a Buddhist perspective, right? We have built up so much good karma. We don't even know what to do with ourselves. Hopefully it will all come back again. I do think about that. <laughs> like this, it'll come back someday. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me on, Angela. There you have it, today's guest mentor interview. Check out the show notes for links mentioned in this episode. If you're enjoying the series, please send a message to my guests to let them know and leave a review on iTunes to help more women find the show. The Guest Mentors five-part summer series is sponsored by Speaking School for Women, my signature online course that teaches you how to become a paid professional speaker in six weeks or less. Learn branding, marketing, speechcraft, pricing, pitching, and so much more. Now until August 31st, 
31st, get 20% off using promo code SUMMER20 at checkout. Learn more at speakersisterhood.thinkific.com. Link is in the show notes. This series is also sponsored by Told Video, original, thoughtful storytelling for your brand. Here to help you with your next step in speaker marketing, a meaningful video. Let your story out into the world and get it told. Follow Told Video on Instagram at Told Video for flash sales and discounts announced monthly. This podcast has been a production of the Speaker Sisterhood and was recorded at the Glitter Closet in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Learn more at speakersisterhood.com. Well, that does it for me, my friends. As always, stop waiting, start creating. I'll see you next time. 